0: Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. With regards to cognitive health, many of us focus on nutrition and supplements, even though physical exercise is the foundation for preventing cognitive decline. On today's episode, my guest Ryan Glatt will explain how we can use exercise for optimizing our brain health. Ryan is a psychometrist and brain health coach with more than a decade of experience in the health and fitness industry. He presently works alongside clinicians and researchers at the Pacific Brain Health Center in the Pacific Neuroscience Institute in Santa Monica, California, to study the effects of cognitively enhanced and comprehensive exercise plans on the brain. With a strong background in exercise science and human health, Ryan develops curricula specifically targeted towards those with dementia, Parkinson's disease, autism spectrum disorders, and traumatic brain injury, coaching individuals towards optimal brain health. On top of developing programs for the health and fitness industry on health neuroscience, Ryan also consults for brain-based technology companies like SmartFit, he has completed brain health programs from the Amen Clinics, the Neurocoaching Institute, the Neuroscience Academy, the Neuroleadership Institute, Neuroscience for Coaches, and others on the topics of brain health, sleep, and mindfulness. Ryan's mission is to solve the problems associated with neurodegeneration and its effects on health and wellness. So Ryan, I always like to give a little bit of background on my guests. I know that you are very passionate about what you do, and can you give us a bird's eye view of your backstory? How did you actually get into neurology and corrective exercise?
1: Yeah, my background is in personal training, and I'm a board-certified health coach. I have a master's in neuroscience. The way I got into fitness was overcoming being overweight as a kid. And so I actually lost weight off of active video game, which is called an extra game called Dance Revolution. Uh I was video game addicted and used that as my way of getting active. That allowed me to lose weight. And because I lost weight, I started going to the gym more. I was working out, I was lifting weights. I was doing more aerobic exercise, playing more tennis. And I started to feel myself psychologically, cognitively, and physically just become a different, maybe better human. And I started to uh, do better in school. I started to socialize more. I wasn't isolating as much. I had more confidence, better sleep, better mental health. And it really transformed my life. And I wanted to share that with other people. And at the same time, my mom was undergoing some kidney disease and an amputation of her leg due to neuropathy and I saw her working in physical therapy I was very motivated to pursue physical therapy so I studied a lot of corrective exercise my goal was to be able to lay my hands on people and do manual therapies to allow them to move better I got rejected from physical therapy schools I became a Rolfer which is a type of body worker instead I burnt myself out on that and said you know what I'd like to come back to this idea of Fitness and also merge my passion of neuroscience, which was really coming from animal behavior. I always watched movies with animals with a lot of fascination, and I studied animal behavior in college. And so, with all my interest in gaming and fitness and neuroscience and psychology, I decided to pursue how I could, as a personal trainer, as a health coach, help people achieve better brain health. And so, there were a lot of things permeating public awareness, like exercise is good for your brain but no one really went into more detail. There's a lot of things like, ooh, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, it's miracle growth for your brain. Okay, well, if I'm understanding that correctly, I should do exercise if I'm not doing any, and if I am doing some, I should do more, and that's good for my brain. And that's not wrong, that's true. But if you said, hey, vegetables are good for you, there's no practical action with the exception of just eating more vegetables, which is still good information, it's still good behavior change, but there was no one really laying out a plan like a nutritionist might do for you. Similarly, if someone had a brain health goal to improve their attention, to improve their memory, to prevent dementia, to improve uh, their quality of life and cognition with Parkinson's disease, for instance, they should have a very specific exercise plan or what some might call an exercise prescription that they follow where everything is planned out, the sets, the reps, the timing, when, where, why is planned out for you so you can adhere to it just like a nutrition plan or a food plan. And I saw that was very much lacking in general. Doctors would say exercise is good for you. You should do it. Weren't giving specific action plans. Personal trainers and nutrition and health coaches were lacking specific knowledge on neuroscience and how to bridge the gap between the two. And there is a, everybody wants to improve their brain health. Everybody seems to care about it. There's no direct, clear pathway. And I wandered through these different professions and found myself where I am now, which is working at a place called the Pacific Brain Health Center, where I'm a brain health coach. I run a program as a personal trainer called the Fit Brain Program, which is essentially a brain gym where we combine cognitive challenges with exercise simultaneously to enhance cognition uh, in older adults, primarily with those with cognitive balance and walking impairments. That includes Parkinson's, MS, but it also includes mild cognitive impairment and those with dementia. Now my goal is to help other people create exercise plans that are good for their brain and primarily train other fitness professionals and health professionals how to do that.
0: Outstanding. I love your approach to mental and physical health. Uh, you very clearly state that it is connected and also on your own personal journey when you started exercising when you were younger and you said it made you you felt like it made you a better and different human. When we feel good and balanced in our skin. It just brings out the best in us. We can achieve our highest potential. And I'm curious about one thing. Most of the time, we now, of course, live in an age where people more and more also are open to living the life in a way that it can also prevent getting ill and enhance what we're already blessed with. But usually people seek a solution to a problem. They'll come, they'll buy something or they'll seek help when something already is really hurting. So here's my problem. I'm dealing with cognitive decline or I'm dealing with a physical ailment. How do I heal it? How can we actually motivate people to, before that even happens, or how do you motivate people to actually live in a way that could prevent a lot of this stuff that later cascades down enough
1: yeah. because we didn't make good choices years ago. So with, I, I think it's fortunate and unfortunate that the primary motivation for brain health is typically fear. And that's, I, I didn't instill that fear. I, at least I hope I didn't. Most people have that fear. So when individuals have a family history of a neurodegenerative condition, like Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's or other types of dementia or they know they're particularly vulnerable to strokes or at risk for strokes, cardiovascular conditions, whatever it may be, usually when it's in the family, especially people that are caring for their parents or significant others that are going through those conditions, they are typically quite motivated to prevent it for themselves. Because at one point they start thinking, wow, this is really tough to deal with. What do I need to do to stop myself from getting there? Because I don't want to be a burden and I want to maintain my mental faculties as much as possible. And so usually it's fear-driven, and it might be a news segment where they heard the prevalence of Alzheimer's disease and how it's exponentially on the rise, or maybe they someone keeps misplacing things or forgets names and faces, and all of a sudden they think it's dementia, or that might be the early signs of something to be worried about. So typically it is fear that's different than other types of let's say weight loss doesn't have the same type of fear motivation. And typically this ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure is usually met with, oh yeah, we know that. But when it comes to brain health, it's actually, I think, welcomed a little bit more. Some people are just like, they really don't care. And so there's two spectrums. There's like anxiety and there's ignorance. And really we're in the middle when we think about our brain health. But usually the way we get to somewhere on that spectrum of emotion and motivation when it comes to our brain health is, is typically some sort of fear-based motivation. It could also be that it, it's out of frustration that someone is going to their day through their day-to-day life and they're experiencing some sort of cognitive issue, I can't pay attention as well as I'd like to, I can't organize, I can't focus, whatever it might be. That frustration then drives them to see what they could do about it. So usually it's fear or frustration. Sometimes we'll have just there's nothing wrong. They're not scared. They just want to calmly do everything they can to prevent it. Certainly younger people are probably going to be more calm than older people in this regard because they're less prone to cognitive decline unless there's a significant health issue, a sleep issue, significant stress, mental health, concussion, all of that can affect cognition at an early age. But many people are are usually acting out of fear. (laughs) Right. Right. The goal of a health coach is not to instill that fear or, or fan that fire to make it bigger. It's to give them a clear pathway to risk reduction.
0: And, you know, when we're talking about brain health, for you as an expert on this topic, what does that actually mean? What is the baseline? What is good brain health? What should be
1: our baseline? So that's like asking what's good pancreatic health. The the brain is just an organ. It's a little bit different, but it's similar in the sense that it's got structure and it's got function and structure or or your muscles, for instance, your muscles have structure and they also function in a certain way. And so if we saw someone with sarcopenia with very small muscles, we'd say, hey, that's probably not good. If we saw someone who is very weak and couldn't carry their groceries in, we'd probably say, hey, that's not good. You need to both train structure and function. And so the brain isn't too dissimilar. We would want to ensure that the brain is at an appropriate volume and you can only figure that out. You can't feel that your brain is bigger or small. You might feel the downstream effects of it in terms of your cognitive abilities, but you need something like a volumetric MRI to see the size of your brain. And then if you want to look at the function, if we were going to image that with neuroimaging, you would need a quantitative EEG. That's the only thing that's really clinically available. In research, they use fMRIs and other types of things. You can get spec scans, which are out-of-pocket and very expensive. But there's a lot of ways to check out your brain's function and structure. But one way that we really are intimately aware of how our brains are working is how we feel. Mentally, mm-hmm. Cognitively, every day, all day, typically. Even if you're distracted, you're using your cognition to focus on something or not. And so every day, we have this barometer of how we're feeling and that can include our mood, we know what mood is, our energy levels, but also our cognitive abilities, our attention, our memory, our speed of processing, our organizational abilities, our ability to memorize things, in our short-term memory. There's all of these different cognitive abilities that the human brain possesses, and there's subdomains of those abilities. So different types of attention, different types of processing speed, auditory vis- versus visual, complex versus simple. And so we're using these things every single day and so as soon as we start to see that they're either getting worse or getting better we may or may not change our behavior Mm -hmm. but getting worse then that might propensate you to do something about it if it's getting better then you're like cool that one intervention like i'm exercising more is helping me and that's usually good enough for most people there's also cognitive testing and mood questionnaires that clinicians and practitioners can administer But most of the time, even if you're connected to one of those, you're going based off how you feel. And there's a normal trajectory of aging for your brain. There's a normal trajectory of aging in general. And while there's a lot of talk of anti-aging medicine, and we're all on this trajectory, there's no stopping it. There's no going the other way. And you can alter the trajectory. You can get it to be steeper by probably making worse lifestyle decisions, or you can get it to last a little bit longer and not be as steep. So that trajectory is a little bit longer. The structure and function of your brain changes, and when it comes to cognitive aging, there's certain things that normally change with age, and there's certain things that are not supposed to change with age. For example, occasionally misplacing a check or your keys or a little bit of inattentiveness, that's normal. Everyone probably has that. But some people, that happens to, and they think they have dementia. When you're something that's recurring again and again and again and it's constantly getting worse or steadily getting worse over time, maybe that's... More reason to be concerned, and you should go talk with your doctor, a neurologist, whoever it may be. When it comes to generalized brain health, we're going basically on our function and how we feel. But then, of course, if you do have the ability to get this imaging, you can be compared to people your age and gender to see where you're at. Hey, is the total size of your brain where you should be? So, th- those are the different ways we usually quantify brain health. And of course, there's more indirect things like you can measure your sleep, you can measure things in- of like micronutrient values. And most of those things have been correlated to brain health in some way, shape, or form, either directly or indirectly. So there's different ways of both directly and indirectly looking at your brain health, um, and that's probably how I define it. Great.
0: Thank you. This was a really great answer. And it's also good to know that we have all kinds of different methods, modalities at our disposal to actually measure our brain health. What you mentioned before, the fear factor, people really fear cognitive decline. We can measure it. We can look at what's happening to our brain. And also, I think a lot of people would probably be surprised this fear that we have, how much of our brain health can we actually influence, for example, by lifestyle, by Diet, by nutrition, how much is in our own hands?
1: A lot of it's in your own hands, and I think some people. This is a double-edged sword because when we talk about this, people hear about the you know miraculous findings of neuroplasticity and how our brain mm-hmm. to change, and that is true. Um, but the way in which we understand it, where we think of new neurons generating all over the brain with whatever diet we're participating in, maybe is it's actually being debated in adult in the adult human brain. We don't know if there's as much neurogenesis as is spoken about. And so many people will generalize what happens in a research study with a stroke patient or a mouse to normal, healthy humans, adult humans. And so it does depend on the context, but we are able to do quite a bit about our brain. I wouldn't say every lifestyle intervention is created equally mm-hmm. looking at the evidence. And so I tell people, if I was your money manager and I'm helping you invest in stocks, There's different ways to go about this. There's investing in stocks that are much riskier, and there's investing in stocks that are a little bit more secure, and then there's investing so that we get the biggest return on your investment, and we can think short-term and long-term. And so the same thing is with brain health with lifestyle behaviors. So when I take people through a brain health coaching process, I'm seeing what they're doing well, I'm seeing what they're not doing well, I'm seeing what their level of knowledge is, what they already know. What maybe there's an opportunity if there's maybe an opportunity i can see if i can provide more information about something but if you look at the world health organization's research on the cognitive decline issues that we're facing mm. and been an attack on science but they've accumulated all the best experts in the world to compile the research to say what are the lifestyle factors that are going to slow down cognitive decline exercise is at the top yes it's at the tip top and so unfortunately it's usually recommended last for brain health. And what's on the bottom of that evidence list is typically recommended first. And that's supplements, mm-hmm. receive, you know, following brain training, which none of those things are bad per se, but usually that's where people put most of their energy first. Yep. That's a risky portfolio strategy. And yep. so if we wanted to optimize our brain health, we'd probably start with exercise and sleep and nutrition and stress management cover
0: the cover the basics and tell us us why because this is obviously your field of expertise why is exercise so important for our brain and how does it impact our brain
1: okay so we'll focus in on exercise there's a lot of ways in which exercise can affect the brain exercise has been called a poly pill Mm -hmm. in many different things we know what a pill is and so it can affect the brain and body in so many positive ways i call it a neuro poly pill because it affects Brain in many different ways, and many of these mechanisms people have heard of, uh, people will probably understand and have heard that exercise increases blood flow to the brain. This is probably not surprising, and that is a mechanism that's a physiological mechanism by which the stimulus of exercise sends blood flow to the brain, and over time, both in the short term, but re- we need repeated stimulus of exercise to have any sort of adaptation. You do not trigger muscles from one session at the gym you need several weeks, months to see significant results. The same is true for brain health. You'll see benefits in the short term. You'll Because of the release of certain neurotransmitters like dopamine and cortisol and noradrenaline and serotonin, all these things, you're gonna see a spike in those things in the short term within two hours after exercise. You're also gonna release brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which has been called miracle growth for the brain. It's a protein in a molecule that gets expressed that tells the brain to protect itself, to grow, to function better. Um, And then the blood flow also creates the stimulus for what's called angiogenesis, Mm -hmm. new blood vessels. So over time, you'll create more blood flow in the brain in the short term. And then over time, the network of blood vessels may become more rich or connected. And so you're paving these highways within the brain that are probably going to function and maintain their structure better because they're receiving resources, oxygen and nutrients, things of that regard. And then they can support the neurons and the synapses and the brain cells they're all supporting that's at the micro level meaning it's these capillaries are things that you can maybe imagine and we've studied in animals and we can imagine humans to a degree and then there's other things at the micro level that are very small neurons improving their function creating new brain cells synapses branching dendrites branching all these different structures of the brain cells improving in their structure and function And then the release of other growth factors, not just brain-derived neurotrophic factor, but nerve growth factor, insulin growth factor one, irisin, VEGF, or vascular endothelial growth factor. All of these are released at different concentrations, depending on the type of exercise you're doing and what that dosage of exercise is. And all of that's occurring at the micro level. Mm -hmm. At the micro level, we have changes in brain volume and function. So your brain has gray matter and white matter. The gray matter is unmyelinated neurons, and the white matter is myelinated. Myelin is just like this fat-based wrapping around a neuron that increases the speed of the signal. So if you think of an ethernet cable, if it didn't have that rubber wrapping around it, the signal wouldn't transduce as fast. That's white matter. The gray matter is the stuff on the outside, like the cortex of the brain. So exercise has been found to improve both gray matter and white matter integrity in the brain. And it's been shown to do that in a global sense, meaning you have global gray matter volume, just like you have total body weight, for instance. That gray matter volume has either been shown to improve or be maintained because of exercise, as well as the white matter. And there's certain areas of the brain, certain lobes, regions of the brain, that grow in response to exercise, including different types of exercise. So Mm -hmm. the canvas, if you put your hands over your ears, that's the temporal lobes, In deeper towards the center of the brain is this area of the brain called the hippocampus. It's this seahorse shaped part of your brain that has been uh, attributed to age-related memory changes. So if we think of an older adult and that's, they're 86 years old and they're experiencing memory decline, it's very likely that this hippocampus is shrinking. So research has shown that exercise can increase the size or maintain the size and or function of that hippocampus, of that structure.
0: And very specific exercises. So obviously, exercise is great for a variety of brain benefits. And you've spoken before also about that you actually tailor make a program for the people you work with. So the exercise that you do, does it have, how is it varied, depending, let's say on age, gender, or condition for an optimal outcome? Can you give us an example?
1: Sure. So it's all about individual preferences, ability, and character, if you will. And this is where the health coaching comes in is what is that person wanting to do? How can I help them achieve that while speaking to their preferences? So if I'm saying, okay, this person is doing a lot of aerobic exercise, uh, but they're not doing any resistance training, any Mm muscle strengthening activities, that's going to be a problem because that's part of the recommendations for brain health is to do at least two to three times a week of muscle strengthening or resistance training activity. And, and why? What does it cause exactly? So when we talked about those growth factors earlier, VEGF and BDNF might be more expressed with aerobic exercise, and IGF one might be more expressed with resistance training. Mm-hmm. It's not exclusive it's not like a resistance training doesn't touch the other ones and aerobic training doesn't touch the other one it's just that the volume knob the emphasis is turned up a little bit more and so when i define the hippocampus certainly that seems to respond more to aerobic exercise but resistance training has also been found to affect that area Mm -hmm. however there's research showing the resistance training affects the frontal lobes of the brain the front which is responsible for executive functions which is like the ceo of your brain and so we might be able to target these different regions. If you had a scan and said, hey, your frontal lobe is actually lacking in structure. Maybe it's smaller compared to your age and gender, people in your normative data group. Everything else is fine. And you're doing enough aerobic exercise. The fact that you told me you don't do any resistance training and your frontal lobe is small, okay. So that's one approach. It's, it's yeah. kind of precision medicine approach. However, aerobic exercise has also been found to contribute to the function and structure of the frontal lobe. So it's never exclusive because the brain is such a complex organ. It's not as easy as this plus this equals that, but it's steering people in a slightly different direction based on the information we have. Sometimes that information is, I feel like my memory isn't as good, I'm not doing any aerobic exercise. I say, okay, I know that the research shows aerobic exercise affects memory positively. So maybe we should do more of that and see where that goes. So that's one way I might individualize. Then there's also other areas of the brain like the cerebellum and the basal ganglia is affected in Parkinson's. And so the cerebellum uh, is also responsible for coordination and motor control. And let's say someone's experiencing cognitive impairments, their brain scan shows all the areas are fine except those two areas. They're doing aerobic training, they're doing resistance training but they're not doing anything what's called neuromotor training. Neuromotor is kind of brain-body. It's a dance, sports, martial, mind-body exercise like yoga or tai chi. Maybe they're not doing that, and their brain scan says this, and so maybe they need to do more of that. But it doesn't need to be so complicated to the extent where everyone needs to get an interpretive brain scan, although I recommend anyone over the age of 60 gets a brain scan. Even if you want to be preventative, get a brain scan, of course. Yeah. If you want to have the best chance of developing an exercise program, there's actually general criteria. So while I say I do individualize it for people, I'm making sure they meet this criteria first and foremost. And the way they get there might be individual. So if you get your aerobic exercise by playing tennis and another person gets their aerobic exercise by getting dance, They're both neuromotor activities that are cardiovascularly demanding that get them closer to our goal. And so I'm not going to be too picky about that. And and certainly if you enjoy what you're doing, you're going to be doing it more. And so the minimum recommendations for exercise to achieve brain health is 150 to 300 minutes a week.
0: Mm-hmm. And you just uh, touched upon something that's crucial. I know you also emphasize that, that it's important that we also enjoy our exercise. Is this just because then we would also tend to exercise more or are there other reasons for it's that? also
1: for the mood benefits as well. And there's some research suggesting that if you're going to participate in cognitively demanding exercises that are also enjoyable, that you might get more bang for your buck. There's more research that's needed, but if you hated something and you hated going to a martial arts class, why would you cognitively benefit from that? And so it's a great question. Thank you for stopping me on that one. So it's important that you enjoy what you do. Of course, it's, it doesn't mean that if you don't enjoy it, you shouldn't do it. Not mm-hmm. everybody will enjoy resistance training, for instance, but it's important that you do it. And so it's a bit of a negotiation. And so that 150 minutes I was talking about to 300, it's a moderate to vigorous physical activity. They typically say of aerobic exercise, mm-hmm. but you can get aerobics by doing a lot of different things. And I am talking about exercise. I'm not talking about physical activity. So I'm not talking about generalized movement throughout the day. I'm talking about structured sessions that elevate your heart rate or have a specific amount of work work to rest ratio and sets and reps that are very targeted for a specific purpose. The specific purpose here would be brain health. Physical activity is still very important so there's been exercise you know research correlating physical activity to hippocampal volumes and things of that regard that's very good we don't want to dismiss that but we don't want to substitute exercise for physical activity or physical activity for exercise and so the 150 minutes can be split up in a lot of different ways you could do five times a week of 30 minutes three times a week of 60 minutes if you hit those 150 minutes there is evidence that you will sustain brain health benefits Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, If it's at a higher intensity, you could get away with 75 minutes, but there's more research saying that, hey, it depends on your biology, how you might respond to that high intensity interval training. Maybe depending on your mental health, depending on your biomarkers, depending on your, if you have chronic fatigue, for instance, you won't tolerate that, that. It depends. So I wouldn't say that high intensity interval training is for everybody all the time, but there's a unique benefit to doing that. It might release more BDNF. It might Uh, lead to improvements in processing speed. But there's a lot of ways to get to that 150 minutes. If you're getting to 300 minutes, there's additional benefits. And the way we can break down that 150 to 300 minutes is two to three days a week of aerobic training, two to three days a week of resistance training, two to three days a week of neuromotor training. And I know there's not nine days in a week, but it gives you a range. So there's flexibility in how you get that. And people might say, I'm not gonna work out six days a week. How can I get to that 150 minutes, but still check off all those boxes? Well, you could do one session where 30 minutes is cardio, 30 minutes is resistance. You could not do dedicated cardio, but get your cardio through dance and tennis. And now you're checking off the neuromotor while you do yoga a couple of days a week. So there's all different ways to go about this. So those configurations, because there's so many options based on that person's interview and their biomarkers and their goals and their personality and their access and their budget, that's where I start to individualize things.
0: Excellent. And with regards to people often like to know, if I do this, what does that do for me? Now, given every body, every brain is different, but is there a general ratio of a percentage of how much does exercise actually decrease our chance of cognitive decline?
1: Yeah. So it depends on what literature you're looking at. There's a lot of different statistics out there. We can say there's moderate to strong evidence for this being effective. hmm Okay. So we can go with that. And you, it depends on your genotype status. So there's something called the Alzheimer's gene, the APOE3 or APOE4. So you could have a 3.3, a three four, or a 4.4. So it depends on how many copies you have of these alleles and the configurations of those alleles that may determine your risk. And so depending on that and other biomarkers and other risk factors, do you have sleep apnea? Have you had a concussion? Do you have mental health issues? Do you have mm-hmm. impairments? Do you have exposure to environmental toxins? things of that regard. You need to consider those things because that will change. I don't want to give an answer about a percentage risk reduction, or if you exercise at 150 minutes a week for 10 years, you'll prevent dementia by 20 years or something like that. None of those statistics to me are, they're helpful. And some people up to 30% less likely chance or 80%. There's a lot of statistics out there and it just depends, but let's just say it's really good at doing its job of preventing cognitive decline. It's probably one of the most powerful tools we have for doing so.
0: Absolutely. And what you also do is you combine exercise with cognitive challenges. What are the benefits of that?
1: So, there's some early research coming out showing that when we do this concept called dual tasking, where we combine a mm-hmm. cognitive task with a physical task, there may be uh, equivalent or a greater cognitive benefits than if we just did aerobic exercise or brain training alone or separately. So, this is a very exciting area of research. The interesting thing is that this already exists, and it's not new in the sense that it hasn't been done. It's new in the sense in the way we're understanding it. So that neuromotor category of exercise includes dual tasks naturally. So sports is a dual task. Dance has dual tasking. Yoga has dual tasking. It doesn't mean, okay, if I do one of those things, I'm good, and I don't need to invest in other neuromotor activities, or I don't need to care about dual tasking. But it's worth noting those things are cognitively demanding, and they incorporate thinking with moving. There's more different types of activities that are maybe more specific to different types of cognition or maybe more general. So when I talked about Dance Revolution, that's an extra game. That is dual tasking as well. Mm -hmm. And then the Nintendo Wii, the Xbox Kinect, those were extra games and some of those are still around. Now, virtual reality has a lot of extra gaming involved in it as well. So I use a lot of virtual reality exercise for my exercise to get my heart rate up but there's also cognitive demands with it. So there we go, dual task. These are called general extra games because they're not trying to target memory or attention. They naturally have those elements in them perhaps. And then what I do with our team at the clinic is we actually target a function. So if you have a memory issue, we give you memory tasks while you're extra gaming, if that makes sense. So general extra gaming and there's specific extra gaming, and we're doing it in a clinical environment where this is more consumer grade Oculus Quest 2. Yes. Yeah. And play ping pong. You can buy that. And by the way, if you're interested in learning more about ping pong, which is a great neuromotor activity that almost everybody, I highly recommend checking out a website called pingpongforgood.org, which is a nonprofit started by, co founded by one of my patients who has Parkinson's disease, or one of our, our center's patients that has Parkinson's disease. And I typically play him on the ping pong in VR one or two times a week. Pingpongforgood.org is a great website that. Gives a lot of resources how to incorporate ping pong into your daily life through VR, through at home, through equipment. But it's really about personal preference, how we get this dual task and this neuromotor activity into our lifestyle. Some people never heard of this virtual reality exercise thing and get very excited about it and adopt it and love it. Some people it's not a good fit for. Maybe technology isn't their thing. It's not attractive to them. They're not really gamers. Maybe they get dizzy. They have a vestibular issue maybe they're at a high risk for falls and maybe it's not a good idea for them, but everybody can find a neuromotor activity that has dual tasking within it that maybe they could participate in to hopefully elicit those benefits.
0: Yes, and if you can do it in a playful way, uh, the better. I, I also really like what you shared when you uh, told us about how you first got into that and how you first started losing weight, functioning better and yeah. that you actually did it by gaming. a very playful, a very positive approach, yeah. something that's fun and not a punishment. And exactly. so of course something else that's really important with regards to uh, cognitive health is uh, diet and nutrition. And could you share with us what are the three macronutrient ingredients in a brain healthy exercise plan?
1: So uh, I give a nice little metaphor of a nutritionist. When people ask me about nutrition, I'm not a nutrition expert. I go to the Mediterranean or MIND diet for brain health uh, and encourage people to check that out if they want to learn more about it. It's things everyone's probably heard before, but that has the most evidence for improving brain. I don't comment on any other dietary trends because I experiment with them. I, I them, but I don't say one is good or one is bad. I only go with what has the most evidence, which is currently the mind diet and the Mediterranean diet. But just like you have carbs, fats, and proteins, uh, those are macronutrients. I also talk about these, this metaphor of macronutrients for exercise in a brain health plan. And so this would be aerobic exercise is one kind of quote unquote macronutrient, resistance training is another one, and so is neuromotor training. And so we have aerobic resistance and neuromotor, and you wanna have a combination of of those three things in order to have a, a very brain healthy exercise plan. And so one very simple way to start incorporating this is thinking about which one you're not doing enough of or at all. And so if you're like, okay, I'm doing tennis, check, I'm doing running, check, I'm doing Tai Chi, check. Oh, I'm not doing resistance training. You bet that one of the best things for your brain could just be incorporating that a couple times a week. Similarly, if you're doing aerobic, you're doing resistance, you're going to the gym, but you're not participating in any neuromotor activity, you want to pick a dance, a sport, or martial art that allows you to start incorporating that. Or maybe you're doing neuromotor and resistance, but you're not getting your heart rate up. So you self-assess your own exercise plan to see where you're at.
0: Yes, we need uh, the variety. We need these three, as you call them, which I love, macronutrients for the brain and how does it apply? I'm a big fan of constantly exposing myself to new information, new things, to learn new things. I just love it. I, I'm one of these eternal sponges. I want to absorb as much knowledge as I can. With regards to brain health, is it better to focus on one specific thing or is it better for brain health to develop and be interested in a lot of different areas and develop a lot of different skills?
1: You mean in knowledge acquisition and skill, yeah. skill development? That's a good question. I think there's, um, when we talk about this concept of cognitive reserve, it's like your brain's mental gas tank to maintain your brain health and fidelity as long as possible. Mm -hmm. And exercise and all these modifiable lifestyle factors contribute to cognitive reserve, as does mental health and social support. But novel experiences and learning is something that can also contribute. I think when people hear that, they may go a little hectic with, oh, I got to learn this and that. And It should be out of anxiety or stress to learn as many things as possible. Just generally speaking, novelty, the brain's a learning organ. Mm -hmm. And Of course, if you're getting more use out of that organ, then it it may lend itself to being more robust. And so learning in general, I think is good. The way I like to incorporate this is, you know, not learning 30 languages as much, but more incorporating novel exercise modalities that maybe you've never done before. Because you have motor learning and with, physical exercise embedded, and perhaps there's that synergistic effect.
0: Great. There's a question I ask every guest that I have the pleasure of speaking to here on the Superhumanized podcast, and that's with regards to their personal practices. Is there a practices or are there some practices that have been in your life for a while and that have really benefited you mentally, physically, or spiritually that you would be willing to share with us?
1: I think it's got to be extra gaming for me. Nerd. I remain a nerd. And even though I'm the exercise brain guy, I am a terrible example Um, and I'm not the six pack abs, super smart, super responsible dude. That's always on Instagram showing how great my life is. I struggle with stress. I struggle with sleep. I struggle with maintaining my own exercise regimen and I struggle with diet. And so it's a constant battle to maintain my own brain health. And one way that I think it's fun and enjoyable and stress relieving and engaging and intense is extra gaming so I use this like, <laughs> a few times a week to basically look like an, a ninja dancer and I'm going crazy in my living room, uh, probably with not enough clothing and scaring.
0: <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Can you? Ju- I just got one, I just got the uh, you- yeah, but I haven't really gotten into okay. it yet. I was so busy with so many things. But what would you recommend I do? First? All right, so
1: now this is the impetus for you to get on there, yeah. One of my favorite exercise applications on the Oculus is Supernatural VR. Uh-huh. It's amazing. It's like the best way to describe it is like dance fighting. Cool. To bats and you're swinging them at targets that are choreographed to music. It's really amazing. And if you're on there, please follow me so we can compete yes. um, and and comment and trash talk on each other's workouts. <laughs> There's also uh, fit XR, which includes boxing and dancing. 11 ping pong is something I'm a really big fan of. And for those that don't think ping pong could be aerobically demanding, oh man, if you play this game and you're wor- you're playing at a higher level, you will feel how out of breath you can get from ping And then there's also Tai Chi, there's meditation. There's several other things in there that are quite fun. Cool, I'll definitely hit you up on this platform. And when you look at... Any technology that really reached mass adoption, it's typically through some sort of wellness application. So the Apple Watch, closing the rings, right? The iPhone, Apple Health Kit, Oculus, it's, I think it's going to be exercise. I if, if it makes sense for you and you want to do it and there's no contraindications with motion sickness or dizziness or balance, severe balance issues or stepping on your cat because you didn't set up the boundaries... Or put them in your bedroom there's all sorts of things you want to consider before you do it but and uh it's not for everybody but it's really fun when it is
0: awesome and did i just see the aura ring on your finger yeah cool so the measuring your sleep pattern is also a big uh deal of course you mentioned it before sleep is very important for brain health so that's also something that you really keep uh tabs on
1: yeah i'm i have a pretty sensitive brain so when i don't sleep well i feel it and so it's important to maintain. There's something to be said about the accuracy, and that's getting better and better, I hope, with each year. But I would say tracking your sleep and activity is incredibly important.
0: Yes, I agree. Sleep is one of the main pillars of all over well-being and peak performance and just, yeah, being able to live your highest potential. So for people who want to get in touch with you, Ryan, where can they best do that? Where can they find out more about you and your work?
1: Yeah, probably on Instagram. Um, My handle is glatt g-l-e-t-t dot brain health at glatt.brainhealth. brain health. and then if you are a health and fitness professional and you want to learn more about this stuff you can go to brainhealthtrainer.com it's a course that i have that teaches fitness and health professionals about everything we've discussed and is actually a certification to learn about these methods and approaches that's available at brainhealthtrainer.com
0: Outstanding. And as always, I'll put all of this in the show notes for the listeners. Is there anything with regards to the brain or in general that you would, I haven't touched upon that you haven't spoken about that you'd like to share with the audience?
1: I think we're pretty comprehensive. Just stay active.
0: I think so too. It was really a pleasure speaking with you, Ryan. Thank you for being my guest today and I will find you and we will compete. (laughs) Oculus. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.